RTL Original Podcast. everyone and welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke where I talk to people in Luxembourg, passing through Luxembourg or topics related to those of us who live here. Now today's topic is one which affects most of us in some way in our lives, whether directly or through family and friends. It's cancer. Today is World Cancer Day and to mark this International Awareness Day I'm joined by Lucien Thomas, Sarah Kreschmer and Toby Breely. A medical doctor by training, Lucien Thomas is the director of the Cancer Foundation Luxembourg since 2016 and she is also a board member of the European Cancer Leagues. Sarah Kreschmer is a psychologist and psychotherapist working with the Cancer Foundation Luxembourg. And Toby Breely describes herself as an apparently healthy, fit, working mother of three, diagnosed with stage 3 esophageal cancer in August 2018. She had chemo, radiation and a life-changing surgery here in Luxembourg and has been cancer-free since then. Welcome to you all. Now we're talking about something which is a very tough subject, a very weighted subject. And I'm going to turn to you first of all, Lucien. It's World Cancer Day. How common is cancer? Unfortunately, more and more common. You have to know that, for example, in Luxembourg, we will have 3,000 new cancer diagnoses per year. And you agree with me that most of us know or knew somebody who had cancer. Absolutely. And when it comes to your organisation, what sort of support do you offer people who have been diagnosed with cancer here in Luxembourg? The cancer patient is our main focus at Fondation Cancer. So we really aim at give them a better quality of life to help them to the, those journey of a cancer patient, but not only the cancer patient himself, but also his family, his partner, his children. I think it's very important to feel that they can count on us, be it on a psychological level, because we can offer free of charge psychology consultation, but also financial aid or even information about what is important for me as a cancer patient, what can I do, what can I change. We have also cancer groups where patients can come and make, for example, physical activity. Well, you mentioned something really important there, which is that a cancer diagnosis doesn't just affect the patient, but it affects the entire family or the care unit of friends or caregivers around that patient. So Zara, I'd like to turn to you to talk about the psychological impact on the patient and their family or surrounding group of caregivers. Well, to be diagnosed with cancer is a big shock for everyone, not just the person concerned, but also the family and the, the circle of friends that they have. And it's a very shocking moment, which then leads to a treatment that's quite time consuming and, and very difficult to live through. So we offer psychological support to the people. People can come to us or we do video consultations since COVID as well, so that we can support either the patient or someone from their family or their children. Yes. Which is so very important. And Toby, let's talk through your journey. First of all, it's wonderful to have you here. And I'm so glad that you've had that cancer-free tick for now. But I know that anybody who's been touched by cancer never really rests on that. And they probably live with it mentally forever, as does their family. So if you don't mind, could you tell us about your experience? I was sent for a 
routine gastroscopy, that's the camera down your throat to look at your stomach, just because I had had a medium-term experience of reflux. And my doctor suggested it would be good idea to see how things were down there because sometimes that can lead to cancer. She said, let's take a baseline reading so that we have something for the future. So we were quite surprised, actually, when the doctor doing that gastroscopy turned around and said, I didn't like what I saw. They moved very quickly. He took biopsies at that point. By the end of that week, I had a diagnosis and I had already had scheduled those subsequent tests, which were CT scans, PET scans to see if it had spread and more invasive views of inside my esophagus and stomach. So that happened very quickly. And then within a few weeks, I was starting my treatment which was a concurrent series of daily radiation carried out in Esh. I had a taxi to take me there every day, which was a luxury I would never have expected. Wow, paid um, for by the system. Yes. Okay. Wow. Um, so that took a lot of stress out of the fatigue of driving, trying to find my way and trying to find parking. And the family and school runs, for instance. Well, the taxi only helped me with my radiation. But actually, my mother came and helped with that. We did have friends helping with the school run and other family needs as well. So I had concurrent radiation and chemo for five weeks. Then I had a six-week break to regroup some strength. And then I had an esophagectomy, which is where they took my whole esophagus, part of my stomach, rebuilt my insides. It did have a few complications. It's one of the most major elective surgeries that can be carried out. Certainly, it's one of the most major surgeries they do here in Luxembourg. And I was in intensive care for three weeks with complications, which are standard and I honestly believe could have happened anywhere. And when I came out of hospital after a month, it took me a very long time to get back on my feet. Thank you for sharing that story. It's um, a cancer that I don't know much about. It's one of, I would say, the rarer cancers, but I'm going to turn to you, Lucien, to correct me. Tell me about esophageal cancer. You are the first person I've met who I know with it. Yeah, unfortunately, I knew another patient who has it, but for sure it's very rare. I have, for example, for 2020, there's an estimation there in Luxembourg there will be perhaps 40 people getting esophageal cancer Whereas there will be 10 women and 13 men. Mm -hmm. So it's really one of the rare cancers. And what surprised my doctors was that not only is it less common amongst women, it's also much less common amongst younger people. And you are young. And I was 47. And that counts as young in this context. And it's also typically experienced amongst people who are obese, who are heavy drinkers, who are smokers, for example. I didn't fit the profile at all. But not only. I have to say, as you are saying, people who have reflux may yes. have a higher risk of this kind of cancer. Yes. So it's not only smokers and people who drink who are at risk of this kind of cancer. Because sometimes there is like a prejudice attached to this kind of cancer, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> you what did you do to get yeah, this? Yeah, exactly. So I suppose you, you heard that a lot. <laughs> well, that comes on to another very important point that I wanted to bring up. When people talk to you, what should they say? What shouldn't they say to you and your family? 
that's a good question about my family. For myself, probably the best thing that anyone can say is, if they want to touch upon this, is how are you? A very neutral question that leaves me completely able to decide how detailed I wish to answer them. And how did you like the messages coming to you? Because we have all sorts of options these days. Did you like text messages? Did you like verbal messages? Did you like phone calls? Actually, anything was better than nothing. I loved hearing from friends. It made me feel very, very loved and supported through what was, without doubt, a very difficult time. Probably the best were emails, texts, and I had a friend who recorded and sent me voice messages so I could listen. I felt very in touch and immediate, but I didn't have to respond. So it took the pressure off you. Yes. And for your family, what should people do to say or to help them? My husband, I think, felt perhaps that it was a very quick, oh, how's your wife? Not many people said to him, and how are you? So I think for many caregivers, actually having an acknowledgement that they also are going through a very difficult time without having to question that maybe their time is not as difficult as the experience the patient themselves are having. Nevertheless, that does not invalidate the fact that they are having a very difficult experience, perhaps having to carry all their own normal jobs, the emotional responsibility, but also the day-to-day responsibilities of a family or a household. All of that. And of course, the time constraints, because more has to be done by that person, even if help is there, which also can be a little bit of a pressure in some instances. And let's face it, usually the patient is not working while they're having treatment, at least not in this country, but the caregiver frequently is. So they're trying to manage this much greater burden, as well as the psychological burden of thinking they may lose their spouse, as well as three times as much physical responsibility as they would normally have in a very limited time. Sarah, I'm going to turn to you on this point, the psychological impact on the family. What have you seen and what can people do to help the family unit? Well, I think what you said is very important. You said that anything was better than nothing. And I think that's true for most people. There are probably some people who don't like to be contacted all the time. But most people feel that they have lost some people in their life after the diagnosis because people from their entourage just don't contact them. The circle closes down. Yes. So I've heard a patient who said that out of a group of 30 co-workers, just two of them contacted her, despite the fact that she'd worked there for 15 years and that was very difficult for her. You need people to step out of their comfort zone because for some people it is difficult to stay in contact with someone who has cancer and to know what to say and how to react and they fear that they will say something which will not be... Yeah, sometimes they're scared to reach out. Yes, and I think, well, cancer is a subject which scares quite a lot of people and so some people decide not to do that. It's very good that you said it was so important to feel love and to be contacted by people in that situation because I think that's all that you can get as help during that phase because you have to go to the treatment yourself, you have to go through the operation yourself, but you can get attention and love and nice messages and that helps so much. And And actually, thinking of the colleague situation, 
I sensed that there were some colleagues who, even though we're friendly at work, possibly felt, I don't want them to be bothered about work. I don't want them to be thinking about work. Or if it's someone of a, of a more senior level, you know, they perhaps don't want to feel that they're intruding. Mm-hmm. My own experience, I did have a number of colleagues from work and my boss and his boss contact me, but I never felt that that was an intrusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So many of these points that we're making, of course, are personal, but I suppose step one for anybody wanting to help is perhaps to ask the patient, how can I help? Yes, I felt for a lot of people, my answer was, oh, I'll let you know. And of course, I didn't ask for many people. But once we got into the life, we did realise things that we needed help with, that we felt we could ask other people. I think it's always good to go with a concrete suggestion Would it be helpful if I did this? Can I bring you that? Can I help you with this? Because then the person can always say, actually, I don't need food, but I could use this. That's very useful knowledge. So a concrete question, not an open-ended question. I felt better able to accept a concrete example because I think we can all say, oh, let me know if there's anything I can do. But often we don't expect a response. But having said that... I think contacting someone who's been diagnosed with cancer or is undergoing treatment doesn't necessitate you saying, can I help? Maybe your life is too full. It's still better to reach out and just say, I'm thinking of you. How's it going? Mm -hmm. Even without offers of help. Yes, that is good to know, because I think a lot of people might pull back again. I'm thinking of the example you gave about the lady whose colleagues didn't contact her and she may have felt very lonely and isolated and invisible perhaps at that time. But also some people are not able to cope with too many messages coming in because they're reserving all of their energy for recovery and for their immediate family. Speaking of which, how old were your children at the time when you got the diagnosis? My children were 16, 13 and 7. And how did you talk to them about the diagnosis or did you even talk to them? At what point? We had to tell them very quickly, partly because we were quite upset. So I think we wouldn't have been able to pretend that nothing was going on. It was in the middle of the summer holidays. But we also had to cancel our summer holiday as we were due to leave three days after this initial gastroscopy. So we did have to raise it to them very quickly. And we decided to be as honest as we could without sharing too much information So we said they had seen some things that needed further tests. What do they think it is? We don't know. At that point, they hadn't said the word cancer. So we kind of knew that's where this was going, but they hadn't said it. So we don't know. Is it something you're going to die of? And I just said, I hope not. What can one say? Once we had the diagnosis, we sat the three of them down. We chose to do it together I mean, to put the three of them in the room with the two of us and say, well, they found cancer. This is what's going to happen. And to answer the questions that they had as best we could. But of course, we didn't know the answers really any more than they did. But the line that we took was they needed to know that if they had questions, we would answer them rather than 
going away and worrying more than they needed to on their own. I don't think that prevented that, of course. One thing that was extremely helpful to my youngest son was that his school had had a talk from the Kripskrankkanner talking about childhood cancers. So he immediately said, oh, mummy, you're going to go bald. <laughs> to which my reaction was, you know what, I really don't care if I go bald. But if I do, then we'll deal with that. You know, but for him, actually, that was where his concern was focused, which was perhaps a good thing. But he felt very comfortable that he knew what we were talking about because he had had this presentation about cancer. That's really interesting. So the more one is opened up to the ideas and the talking about it and the sharing of knowledge, the more they can actually take in what you're talking about. Zara, you must have seen this. So what is your experience as a professional psychologist, psychotherapist when dealing with children? I think it's very good what you did. I think it's very important to be honest about what's going on because children have very good antennas of what's going on around them and they can usually tell when something's off. It's like you said, you couldn't hide the fact that you were upset. And if you don't talk to children at that point and they just see the upset parent, they're going to make their own film, which usually is a lot worse than what is really going on. And I think the way that you talk to them together everyone as a family and gave them as much information as possible and as honestly as possible is very good because it's not a good thing to hide things from them or to lie to them and I think you gave them the possibility to open up to you and to ask questions so I think that is very good. They were at an age where they could already understand what was going on more or less. I think the seven-year-old probably still a bit on the young side if they're younger, it's a bit more difficult to explain it because cancer is a very abstract uh, phenomenon and it's very hard to understand. I mean, even for us as adults, it's hard to understand that what cancer really is. So you'd have to be a bit more inventive at that point and do it a bit more playfully. And sometimes we meet people who try to hide it from their children, which usually doesn't go down well because they know something's going on and, and they will just show it with their behaviour that they're upset about not knowing what's happening. Mm -hmm. And just to move this one step further, and I don't mean to be bleak at all, I really want to try to develop a toolkit through this conversation to help anybody who ever has to face this situation. If somebody is dealing with a terminal cancer in a family and they have young children, what do you suggest they do as a family or what do you suggest that person can do to leave a memory of themselves, especially if they have young children, for example? That's a hard question. I think it would really depend on the situation. And most cancers are treated a lot longer today than they used to be in the past. I think if, if it was really terminal, the person would have to look what they would want to leave for their children. There are people who write letters. There are people who, who prepare presents for the birthdays to come. I think the most important thing in terminal cancers, which is very hard to do, is to make the most of the time you have left without thinking too much about the fact that you're going to die, which is very, very hard to do. Sometimes children evoke that, that desire to be in the moment because they are very much in the moment. Mm -hmm. Just stay with them, do the most with them, and then try to leave something with the time you spend with them and also maybe letters. Mm -hmm. One of the suggestions that was made to me or that, that I came across early in my cancer treatment was addressing the uncertainties of having cancer 
And the comment that somebody made was, if this is to be your last Christmas, how do you want to spend it? Do you want to ruin your Christmas by grieving and anticipating the fact that it's your last one and putting enormous pressure on yourself and everyone else because of that? Or do you just want to go with it and leave it as normal and special as possible? And although that's very difficult to do and to control your own thoughts if you genuinely are thinking, this is the last time I'm doing something or this could be the last time I'm doing something. Nevertheless, it's something that I've often thought about. Do I want to play this board game or not? No, I don't. But what if it's my last chance? Do I want to dwell on this or that? No, let's just make the moment as enjoyable as possible. And then either we have bonus experiences or it is the last one, but it was a good one. And that brings us back to a major philosophy of life in so many parts of the world, which is try to live in the moment now, try to be present and live today as if it may be the last. So many different variations on this. Lucien, in your experiences dealing with the cancers that you've seen in Luxembourg, how many cancers can be treated here and how well connected is Luxembourg with our neighbouring countries, for instance, to get the help that we might need in other countries? I can imagine a lot of patients might be sent to Germany, for instance, or France or Belgium. Yes, exactly. I think we in Luxembourg, as cancer patients, talking about treatment for sure, we are very lucky. I would say that we have a system that allows us to have all the medicine, the chemotherapy, the newest treatment uh, possible available. So I think in that point of view, we are really well organized. For sure, there are some extremely new treatment, like, for example, CAR T-cells treatment. There are only some uh, university centers in whole Europe who can do that. So for sure that we don't have in Luxembourg. So I think from a medical point of view, we have, don't have any problems. I would say that normally it's the oncologist who may say, who transfer the patient to another country saying, okay, I'm not so well versed in this kind of treatment or in this kind of cancer. It would be perhaps a good idea to go abroad. I would say the, the doctor know what they are doing when they are telling the patients go abroad. It's better for you. They have more experience than we do in Luxembourg. I think it's mostly when we're talking about surgery because Surgery is nevertheless an art, and the more you do surgery, the better you are at it. So maybe for some very intensive surgery or very difficult surgery, sometimes it would be better to go abroad and to have a whole surgery with people who have a lot of experience and who are not doing anything else. I would say the most common surgery are well done in Luxembourg. We also have networking, and that's also fine in Europe. And if you need some place to go, it's easy to go there. And a question on that, really. If a person has a diagnosis of, uh, let's say, colon cancer, which might be one that's dealt with in Luxembourg, but they want to have treatment in another country, will the CNS pay for that? Yes, that's a question you may ask the CNS. That depends. No, normally, there's no reason why if the doctor can really have the right argument saying, OK, this cannot be done here, this must be done abroad. For sure, there still be, and especially if we are talking about Germany, the question of reimbursement. 
Because if you are going as a Luxembourger to Germany, you are at once a private patient. So you have to pay a lot more. And uh, unfortunately, for Luxembourg CNS, you get paid the normal uh, amount of money that it's due in, in Luxembourg, for example. So that might become very expensive for patients going, for example, to Germany. For France and Belgium is not the case because they have more. This, you are not going to be a private patient there at all at the beginning. So in Germany, they have a very good networking of cancer centers. They are very, very good. But unfortunately, often as a patient, you have to pay a lot on your own. Mm -hmm. It can be very expensive, unfortunately. And then I just want to circle back really to how we can take care of ourselves. I don't mean from a health point of view. I mean from a checking point of view, because as you said to us, Toby, you just went for a normal check for reflux. It didn't even enter your doctor's mind that this might be cancer in any way. So, Lucien, as a doctor, as the director of the Cancer Foundation here in Luxembourg, what can we as individuals do, perhaps for a checkup, should you have an MRI scan every two years, for example? No, that doesn't make any sense. I think, first of all, what's very important, you have to know some symptoms of cancer. Even if it's not cancer, you have to check with your doctor. But sometimes symptoms don't show up till it's far too late. Yes. So that's one reason. You have to, first of all, take care of yourself and check if you have symptoms and then go for there. And then, yeah, there's still early detection. I'm sure if you do early detection, like mammograms or colonoscopy, they may find cancer, but at least it will probably found at an early stage and then you have better chance of survival and less treatment, that's for sure. And let me just pick you up on that point. Mammograms in Luxembourg, what age should women start? There is a national mammograms program which start at age 50 till 69. Nevertheless, most gynecologists tell their patients to start like at 40. Mm -hmm. And then it depends. One must say nowadays there's a paradigm shifting about doing mammograms every two years. It's, it's still done in Luxembourg like that. But for example, in France, they are starting to see a risk factor, saying, OK, if you are really at higher risk to have breast cancer, for example, because your mother had breast cancer or you have other risk factors, then you may go less or more often. For example, women with dense breast tissue are going every year. They are not doing mammograms, they are doing IAMs. But people who have no risk factor, maybe in some years we only have to go to mammograms every three years. So it's, it's shifting and you have to stay focused on what's going to be done now and to see what is going to be done in the future. And for colonoscopy, what do you recommend there? And again, what does the CNS pay for in Luxembourg? For colonoscopy, we have also a national program for colorectal cancer, the early screening. Nowadays, it's done by FITS, saying you don't do colonoscopy. I must say, on a personal level and also from a Cancer Foundation point of view, we always prefer colonoscopy through the search of blood in your stool because it's less effective. We always think it would be better to have a colonoscopy at the beginning at 50 because now colorectal cancer, people are more and more young getting mm -hmm. colorectal cancer. 
On the point of the age of people getting cancer, is there a trend for people becoming younger to get cancer? Um, it depends on the type of cancer. Of course. Well, for example, cancer in children, I would say there's more or less 35 per year in Luxembourg. Way too many, we completely with you, but it's more or less stable. What we see now is, and that's question of cancer prevention or risk factor, we see more and more, for example, colorectal cancer in younger people. When you say younger, do you mean 30s, 40s? I'm saying below 50, because mm. normally colorectal cancers starts at 50 or mostly at 60. But now we see also people with 40 or 35 having colorectal cancer. It's mostly seen right now in the United States because they think that people becoming more and more obese is really a risk factor for colorectal cancer. But unfortunately, we also see an increase of breast cancer in younger women. At the time, it was always like 63 is the medium age of getting breast cancer for women. But now we see really young women with 30, 32, 35 getting breast cancer. And not only genetic history of breast cancer, like BRCA1 or BRCA2, but also younger women getting breast cancer. We are really, really upset about it and we don't really know why but there may be some explanation like uh, getting less children or getting children later on your life. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose the solution is to try to be as healthy as we possibly can be. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things out there to do. What would you suggest we yeah, do? Yeah, I would say cancer. We may can do something to prevent cancer. We can try to lower our risk factors. And it's always said that 40% of all our cancer could be prevented by a healthy lifestyle. But still, we will have 60% of cancer. It's like lottery. We don't know about it. And how much is genetic? What percentage? Not as much as people think they are. Normally, it's like 5 to 10%, for example, of breast cancer are genetically determined. So it's not really genetics right now, maybe in the future when we are better at seeing our genomes and we see more and more mutation on genes and we are saying, okay, everyone will get his genome and we will see all the mutation we will have. I don't know if you want to have that, but maybe <laughs> one day. But right now we can say that it's not very important, the part of genetic reasons. So in fact, what you're saying is that about 40% is lifestyle and roughly 60% is random. It's random, yes. Well, I suppose we live in this random universe and we're here <laughs> yeah. at a random time, not of our choosing, so we must live day by day, as we just mentioned. I wanted to ask you a little bit again. Sorry, I'm, I'm sticking with you, Lucien. No, no, I wanted no. to ask you a little bit about your work with the European League for Cancer and uh, what you learn from that and how the European countries come together to discuss this topic. Yes, it's very interesting because as we have already Southern Europe and uh, Northern Europe, you already see a huge difference in how people react and how people are acting. Tell us more. How, yeah. do, you, how do people act in Southern and Northern Europe? Yeah, for example, when we're talking about screening programs, for example, the Northern countries, they are like, I would say, 80, 90 percent of people are doing the screening. The thousand you get, the less people are doing early screening or early detection. Is that an economic reason or a cultural reason? I think it's a cultural reason. People in the northern are more rational, where people in the south are, I don't know. More relaxed. More rela <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, for sure they are quite... And it's very interesting. And we learn from each other. We know 
what is working if you do a prevention campaign, what you can do and where people react. Because I remember, for example, Cancer Research UK did a campaign two years ago against obesity, telling people, okay, obesity is a cancer risk factor, but which most people don't know, honestly. So it was really good attention from their part. Unfortunately, it was getting such a backlash because of body shaming. People who were overweight, who were obese, thought it was like body shaming for them. So it was a huge backlash about it. And so now all the other leagues are like pinpointing around it, saying, okay, we must say obesity is a cancer risk factor. But how are we going to say it? How we are going to communicate it without doing body shaming? So it's very interesting and it's also very interesting if you see you know there are different risk factors you have for example then for tobacco for example uk they are very aggressive they have a really good tobacco control whereas in luxembourg we are far from it from a really consistent tobacco control programs and prevention programs so like i say it's very interesting to see which league is doing what and then we help each other you know we are saying okay you, you did that can we use this kind of brochure for our people so i think it's yeah it's amazing to see how the different cancer leagues are working and for us as a small cancer league we really can use the knowledge of larger like the danish they are very very good at everything they are doing the french cancer research okay for sure so that's very interesting for us as a small cancer league also that's wonderful and it uh, kind of leads me to what i was going to ask you toby which is when you're looking for support whether that be a peer group or information where did you go? Because one thing I've heard from friends of mine who've got cancer here was that they found it very difficult to find information in Luxembourg in English. And it was a potted information, not in one place. So how did you go about when you got this information, this sudden diagnosis, you're trying to just absorb the information. And then I can imagine with your brain, you're trying to suddenly bring in all the information you possibly can. Where did you find it? Well, First of all, I have to say that we're very fortunate that we have several family members in the UK in the medical profession. So I was able to get actual medical inputs via family. But for my own doctor Googling, which is not always a good thing to do when you have cancer. But we do it all um, the time. But we do. I tended to find a lot of good material from the UK and the US. And I think it's that's natural. You have a home bias. I actually felt I had good confidence in material that was coming out of both of those countries because, of course, they're so much bigger. So, Lucien, you mentioned we have only 40 or so esophageal cancer patients expected each year. You know, in those bigger countries, they have so many more. So I think it's only natural that I went to the UK, but I also did find a lot on US websites and Facebook groups. And did you talk to people? Did you sort of have peer interaction with others going through this? Yes. And what I would say is that there is what's known as standard of care. So there are global norms mm. as to what is the ideal treatment. Now, there's not always one single standard of care. For my cancer, there were a couple of different routes they could have taken. But it was very reassuring to know that 
here in small Luxembourg, I was still getting world standard treatments that were comparable with the same treatments that people around the world were getting. And you had your treatment in Luxembourg? Yes, I did. Yes, yes that, I think that is a very important notion that people have to know. Nowadays, all cancer treatments is done by international guidelines, be it American from the American uh, Oncologist Society, be it from the ESMO or, and our national guidelines are always out of those international guidelines. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you are treated in, I don't know, in, in China, well, perhaps not China, <laughs> I would say in, in, in Spain or in Denmark or in Norway or wherever, the international guidelines make it that the treatment is more or less the same. Mm -hmm. That's great to hear. And uh, Zara, I wanted to turn to you because I know with the foundation, you're launching today a questionnaire, Sondage. Yes. You're releasing it on the website. You want as much feedback as possible. And I'll attach it, of course, to this podcast. So tell us about this questionnaire, what it's about, what you're trying to find out. Yes, it's a questionnaire for people who have cancer and for people around them, for their family, their friends. Uh, and people who've gone through cancer. Yes, it's both. So people who've gone through cancer can answer the questions, what has helped them and what they didn't find helpful that people said to them. And people from their surroundings can answer the same questions, what they have done to help and what things they had the impression didn't work as well. And what do you want to do with the information from this? Really, the background is a bit what was the theme today here as well. It's that it's very difficult to talk about cancer and that the fact that people are scared to talk about it makes it even more difficult and that it's important to talk. Because I think that's what you said as well, Toby. It's so important to talk. It's important to talk as a family. It's important to have friends who talk to you. And if there's no communication, things can't be cleared. They can't be mm -hmm. done well. So that's the background and because many of our patients have told us that it was difficult to talk about cancer with their spouse but as well yes <laughs> I was going to say the same thing Zara that even in a very close strong relationship maybe you don't want to say what if I die yes mm. yes so there are certain things which will be difficult to talk about as a couple even in a strong relationship. But if the relationship isn't as well, it's even more difficult to talk about basic things like how was your day? And just the fact that we are going to try with this questionnaire to find out what people found helpful and what they didn't find helpful and what their surrounding people thought was helpful. We want to open the conversation about it so that people know which what thing has helped. I mean, you said before, it's very individual, but... Maybe we will get some things which are quite universal, like the fact that you said it was important to feel loved and you thought that every contact you had during your treatment and afterwards helped you. So maybe that will be something, but we wanted to know more. That's why we're launching this campaign. Mm -hmm. And people can answer the questionnaire with the link on our website, I think. Yes, this questionnaire on our website is unfortunately only in French and German. <laughs> we are nevertheless a small foundation, but I think you can answer also in English. But unfortunately, the questionnaire in itself is only in German and in French. But what Sarah said, and it's very important, it's really to start the communication, to help with the communication, because I think what you said, it's, it's the most important thing. And it's not 
as easy as one can imagine because we're either afraid or we are upset or we don't know how to start a conversation, for example. So we want to have like an, a survey and see, can we choose some very specific topic and make a universal answer of it, how we can manage to talk about cancer. Yeah, and the name of your questionnaire is Comment dire? Can we talk about it? I was actually going to ask you, you did mention that uh, your foundation at the moment is in French and German. Are you thinking about adding an English <laughs> element to it? Oh, we are thinking of doing a lot of things. And, yeah. Do you? Would you like some volunteer help? For the moment, we are already having troubles to have the German version of our internet seat. But when the day comes, probably we will ask for volunteers because there are a lot also of technical problems behind having a website in more than two or three or four. Because on the other hand, if you are doing it in English, I suppose we also need to do it in Portuguese because we have nevertheless a large population of Portuguese people in Luxembourg. So we're always thinking about it, but for us it's really difficult because, as you said, we are only a really small team and we have so many ideas and we want to help so many people. And as Toby said, we are thinking about that in English. We are always open if people have questions to answer them and to try to find answers. But for sure we cannot compete with English or American websites. But people speaking English can come to you. Yes, I think sure. that's very important because what you touched up on, not wanting to talk about certain things in the couple, not wanting to talk about certain things with your friends, is something that that has been shown as is a factor in, in seeking out a psychologist and coming to us and, and having psychological help because... We are neutral and sometimes it's easier to talk about certain fears to someone neutral. So we offer our psychological support to everyone in German, in Luxembourgish, in French, in English. And we have uh, someone who helps out with Portuguese. Uh, That's wonderful. That's really, really good to hear. And as you said earlier, it's a free service. Yes which is outstanding as well. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Have you any final comments, any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? I mean, I know this is a subject we could talk about for hours because there's so many facets to it. We've tried to condense it down to highlight the fact that today is World Cancer Day, to put a spotlight on that and your foundation and to say that it's open for English speakers, yeah. even if the website's not in English. <laughs> Don't be put off. <laughs> yeah, I think what, what I think it's very important to say that we hope that no one of the people who are listening to this needs us but today you really need us we as a cancer foundation are really going to help you so feel free to contact us i would like to add that actually my contact with the foundation started because just this past autumn as i was approaching three years after the end of my treatment I felt I needed some psychological support. And even though it was so long past my actual direct cancer experience, the help was there. That's wonderful. And Toby, thank you so much for being here, telling us your story, your very personal story, and for sharing it with our audience, because that means so much. And you're a wonderful speaker, but I know for some people going through cancer, as you said, Zara, they're not able to speak about it, not even to their family, which actually sometimes can be the hardest of all, in fact. <laughs> so we are so grateful to you and to your honesty. Zara, any final thoughts? 
Just maybe commenting on what you just said, that you've had the need to talk about it three years after the treatment had finished. I think that's something that many people realize because once the treatment is ongoing, you're very taken by it and it's very difficult to have energy for anything else apart from the treatment. So many people actually come to us after their treatment is finished, maybe not three years after, but they usually come after it because that's when the emotions start coming that have been pushed down by all that uh, activity during the treatment and I think it's very important to allow yourself to talk about it and ask for help at that point. And what's fantastic is that even at that point after the cancer is clear as far as one knows with all of the tests your service is still there for cancer patients who have gone through their treatments. Ladies thank you all so much for your time and for all of the work that you do. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you.